3: there welcome this is let's talk about myths baby and i am that woman that host the one who likes to rant live and today well today i'm here to start something a little special firstly yes technically i have told the story of orpheus and eurydice before but it was a mini myth from almost five years ago and so so much has changed since then but more than that When I told this story originally, I didn't continue on with this story, or rather the history of that man that we call Orpheus. That's what today's episode is the beginning of. It's the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, but it's also the beginning of a short series of episodes on the Orphic mysteries, the Orphic tradition, the Orphic hymns, whatever you want to call it. Have you heard of them? Maybe, maybe not, but there's a name that many of you are familiar with, and that comes only from this Orphic tradition. The name is Zagreus. But we'll get to Zagreus in a future episode, I've been putting him off long enough. It's time we examine this very interesting, very unique, very fragmentary religious tradition from the ancient world. Note, I'm not even specifying Greek here, because, man, Orphic tradition is something else. But it all began with Orpheus. This is episode 177, Don't Look Back, The Mysterious Story of Orpheus and Eurydice. If I'd the voice and songs of Orpheus to entrance Persephone or her husband and win you back, I'd have gone to Hades. Neither Pluto's hound nor ferryman Charon would have stopped me before I'd brought you back into the light. That is a line from one of my new favorite Greek plays, Euripides' Alcestis, the magnificent piece of weirdness that I shared with you all earlier this year. And it is also possibly the earliest reference we have to the idea that Orpheus traveled to the underworld to save his wife, and that he did so because of his skills in song. See, Orpheus is a bit of an enigma. But before I get too deep into explaining why Orpheus' story is so very odd and yet so very, very important to the broader history of ancient Greek religion, let's talk about the story itself, which really only exists in any kind of full-length version from Roman times, Ovid's Metamorphoses, and Virgil's Georgics. And very coincidentally, Ovid's Metamorphoses is the next work that I am reading on the podcast starting on Friday. To say that I am excited to read Ovid's Metamorphoses to you all is the understatement of a lifetime. But I digress. Orpheus' story, while absolutely from the ancient Greek world, as we can all see by this reference in Alcestis, let alone everything that I'm going to share with you over the next two weeks, isn't told in any surviving text from ancient Greece. He takes part in things, including being one of the Argonauts, helping them with his famous singing abilities. But the story he's most famous for is seemingly lost save for these Romans who took up the mantle. And I'm me, so I'm looking mostly at Ovid's today, obviously. Orpheus was a musician from Thrace. Some even say he was the son of Apollo and the muse Calliope. That's certainly his most exciting background, but many in the ancient world also believed him to have been a very real, flesh-and-blood person so he certainly could have had some mortal parentage as well. Regardless of who he was born from, that he was a very, very talented musician from the region of Thrace is absolutely certain. Thrace is northeast of Greece, what is now partially modern Greece and partially Bulgaria. Interestingly, Thracians are typically known by the Greeks as being a warlike people. Ares is famously the Thracian god, but Orpheus was all about music. And boy, was he good at it. And boy, was he good at it. The Harry Styles of his time, let's say. Yes, I've been listening to a lot of Harry Styles lately. Orpheus was an unbelievably good singer. The best actually, the absolutely confirmed, definite, best musician the ancient Greeks had ever known. He could charm anyone, and anything, with his music. People, animals, creatures of all kinds, and even, in some cases, nature, broadly, and even rocks and trees, would follow Orpheus's song. He was that good so when this incredibly famous and incredibly talented singer-songwriter of the ancient world was about to get married, it drew attention. The god of marriage himself, Hymen, traveled up to Thrace to attend Orpheus's wedding. But from the moment he arrived, things were off. He attended the wedding, but his presence there did no good. He wasn't able to bless the marriage, and he would usually, and he was not happy to be there at all. And now, l- this is less to do with Hymen as a character with emotions and thoughts, and more to do with the marriage itself being, well, pretty cursed from the beginning. It was not Hymen's choice, it was simply always to be that way, and as the god of marriage, he could see the inevitable from the moment he arrived. Quote, Even the torch he held kept sputtering. Eyes teared and smarted from the smoke. No flame, however much he shook that brand, would blaze. Within days of the wedding, Orpheus's bride, a woman named Eurydice, met her death. Ovid tells us that she was wandering meadows with her friends, naiads, and she stepped on a snake, a viper, that bit her in response and killed her immediately but virgil who like i said also tells the historian in his work the georgics tells an even more tragic version he tells of an additional character a man named aristias who is famous for essentially inventing beekeeping according to virgil's telling of their story virgil famously loved bees by the way this man aristias attempted to assault Eurydice, and she ran from him. She ran for her life, and that's when she encountered the snake that killed her. Both versions have Eurydice dying a tragic death just days after her wedding to Orpheus, but it's interesting that Ovid's doesn't include the attempted assault. For any other ancient writers, it might not be notable, but Ovid's Metamorphoses has, well, a lot of assault, So I'm curious why this one leaves it out. Virgil and Ovid were contemporaries, so who even knows? Like, maybe they planned it together? Probably not. In any case, poor Eurydice dies. Killed by the bite of this snake so soon after her marriage to Orpheus, the pair hadn't even gotten to start their lives together. She was just gone. And Orpheus was distraught. He he was completely torn up about it. Pair seemed to have been truly in love, or at the very least Orpheus seems to have truly loved Eurydice. Her death was not something he was willing to accept. Orpheus was so unwilling to accept the death of his newly wed wife, Eurydice, that he decided he was going to try to do something about it. He mourned her for as long as he could in the world above the mortal realm that he called home, and when he could no longer bear to mourn for her there, he decided to go searching for her in the underworld, in the land of the dead. Orpheus traveled So very far to reach the entrance of the underworld, he went from his Thracian homeland in the northeastern reaches of that world, beyond the Greek world even, and he made his way all the way to the southern tip of the Peloponnese. I, frankly, can't get over how far that would be, which is why I'm emphasizing it. We're not 100% sure he got married in Thrace, but I'm taking it. In the ancient world understanding, there were a number of entrances to the underworld, one even in Thessaly, so so much closer than this one in the Peloponnese, but Ovid makes it very clear. In order to reach the underworld, Orpheus traveled to the entrance at Tynaron on the Mani Peninsula, the southernmost tip of mainland Greece. He would literally go to the ends of the earth, or what felt like the ends of the earth in his life, in an attempt to see Eurydice, or better yet, to bring her back to the land of the living. Orpheus entered the underworld at this entrance at Tyneron, and he wandered amongst the dead, the shades of the dead, rather. He wandered until he found himself before the queen and the king of the dead, Persephone and Hades, or rather, because this is Roman, Proserpina and Pluto. When Orpheus stood before the queen and the king, the pair who rule over this land of the dead, he began to pluck his lyre and sing his song. Am I going to recite the whole song to you now from an older copyright-free translation? Obviously. You know me. O deities of this dark world beneath the earth, this shadowy underworld to which all mortals must descend, If it can be called lawful and if you will suffer speech of strict truth, all the winding ways of falsity forbidden, I come not down here because of curiosity to see the glooms of Tartarus and have no thought to bind or strangle the three necks of the Medusan monster vile with snakes. But I have come because my darling wife stepped on a viper that sent through her veins death poison, cutting off her coming years.' If able I would bear it, I do not deny my effort, but the god of love has conquered me, a god so kindly known in all the upper world. We are not sure he can be known so well in this deep world, but have good reason to conjecture he is not unknown here. And if old report almost forgotten that you stole your wife is not a fiction, love united you the same as others.' By this place of fear, this huge void and these vast and silent realms renew the life-thread of Eurydice. All things are due to you, and though on earth it happens we may tarry a short while, slowly or swiftly we must go to one abode, and it will be our final home. Long and tenaciously you will possess unquestioned mastery of the human race. She also shall be yours to rule, when full of age, she shall have lived the days of her allotted years." So I ask of your possession of her few days as a boon. But if the fates deny to me this prayer for my true wife, my constant mind must hold me always so that I cannot return, and you may triumph in the death of two. So Orpheus sang this song to the queen and the king of the dead, and not even the dead themselves were unaffected by his tragic story and his skill in song and music. Orpheus was simply too talented and too heartbroken. Even the shades of the dead shed tears for his tragedy. Even the dead in Tartarus, the deepest, darkest depths of the underworld, the place reserved for the most horrible of mortals and deities, the place of punishment and horror, even those dead were moved by Orpheus's song. Tantalus, that cursed father who fed his son Pelops to the gods just to prove a point. He held still, no longer reaching for food and water, his tantalizing punishment. Ixion, the creep of creeps who tried to assault Hera and whose punishment was being strapped to a flaming wheel for eternity. Even his wheel stopped spinning for a brief moment so that he could hear Orpheus's song the vultures that ate away at the giant Titius's liver eternally for his attempts to assault Leto, even they stopped their pecking for a time, both the birds and Titius enthralled by Orpheus's song. The Danaids, those women who killed their husbands, forced to carry water forever, put down their urns and listened in. And Sisyphus, that famed punishment and even more famous boulder, stopped his attempts at pushing it up the hill. Orpheus's song was more important. And finally, and most shocking of all, the Furies themselves were said to have wept as they listened. Everything in the underworld and even Tartarus within it came to a standstill as Orpheus sang his song of mourning, his song of hope, his song pleading with the queen and the king of the dead, pleading them to free his wife from her death. With a song like this, it's no wonder that Proserpina and Pluto were moved by Orpheus. They couldn't deny him anything after such an emotional and beautiful performance. When he'd finished his song, they looked to each other and then they called for Eurydice.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard right snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly so visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert snagajob.com where america goes to hire
2: this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global
3: The gods of the dead called for Eurydice. She was nearby, amongst those who had only recently died. It was still so fresh, so fresh that the wound from the snake still hurt her, and she favoured her foot as she made her way, slowly and carefully, toward Orpheus." As soon as she reached him, he took her hand in his, grasping it tightly, and without wasting a second, he turned and began to walk with her in the direction that he came, towards the entrance to the underworld and the land of the living that lay on the other side of it. But as Orpheus walked with Eurydice in tow, he heard instructions called to him by Proserpina and Pluto. They told him, quote, His eyes must not turn back until he'd passed the valley of Avernus. Just one glance at her and all he had received would be lost, irretrievably. So they walked. They made their way through the underworld and towards the entrance at Tynaron, or Avernus. Turns out that's the entrance to the underworld according to the Roman mythology. It's in Sicily. So, I don't know, maybe let's try not to think too hard about the entrance and, I don't know, exits to the underworld and which ones Orpheus is and is not using. I prefer Tyneron because it is Greek and and because a fellow podcaster and new friend, Chelsea Gardner of the People in the Past podcast, told me so, so, so much about Tyneron and the Mani Peninsula when we hung out in Athens. I'm sold on that one. But I digress. In any case, Orpheus and Eurydice made their way through the underworld carefully and in silence. Orpheus looked ahead of him, not daring to look back at Eurydice, though he could feel her hand grasped tightly in his own. That alone was the comfort. He knew she was still with him, and they were getting closer and closer to the land of the living. The path was dark around them. Everything was shrouded in a heavy mist. It was eerie, as if it was, well, the land of the dead. Finally, though, there was light in the distance and Orpheus knew that they were almost at that entrance, or rather exit, and that within mere moments they would find themselves in the land of the living. He'd done it. He'd succeeded in charming the gods of the underworld into freeing his wife, into letting someone come back from the dead. It was unheard of, unbelievable. No one had managed it before, and Orpheus had done it. He was that good." He was so excited, so proud of himself for succeeding where no one had before. He was so happy to have Eurydice back with him in the land of the living, so eager for them to continue on with their lives together, to pick up where they left off as newlyweds, happy and in love and preparing for their futures together. He was so excited by all of this, by the feeling of Eurydice's hand in his, the idea that she would be with him forever, that he turned back to look at her. To make sure that she was really there with him. That this was real. That he really, truly had done this incredible thing. And with that, she was gone. The very moment Orpheus looked back, saw his wife with his hand grasped tightly in hers, saw her face and the expression on it, she was pulled back into the depths of the darkness as though by invisible hands. Shocked. Horrified, Orpheus tried to grab her to reach out and and have her grab him back, but there was nothing there. She wasn't there. Eurydice was gone without a single trace beyond one word that she uttered to him in the split second that they locked eyes. Farewell. Eurydice was gone, pulled back to the underworld, into the dark abyss that lay behind Orpheus as he looked for her, into the nothingness. Ovid tells us that Eurydice didn't blame her husband. How could she? All it did was prove how much he loved her. Which, frankly, is Very kind of Ovid, because I would absolutely blame my husband. How hard would it have been for him to just follow instructions and not look back at her for another few moments? He could have called back to her to hear her voice, couldn't he? No one said that he couldn't. He could have squeezed her hand. Have her squeeze back. Orpheus, there were so many options open to you, and instead, you did the one thing that you were explicitly told would guarantee her death. Her final death. Once more. But fine. Whatever. We're supposed to feel for Orpheus here. Orpheus is stunned. His eyes wide, his face unmoving, he can't believe what's happened. He stands still as stone. He looked as though he'd seen Cerberus himself, Ovid tells us, that the level of shock and horror that had been plastered across the young musician's face was that of monstrosity. He stood there for ages, Like a stone, unmoving, unable to do anything but look back into the darkness where his wife had been, where she had just been holding his hand. But finally, finally he found his voice again, found his way to moving, to going back the way he came. He would try to get her back, he thought. He'd done it once before. So he found the ferryman, Shauron, who brings the dead souls across the river Asheron, or, it seems, in Ovid. The river sticks. He begged Charon to bring him across for another chance in the world of the dead, another opportunity to plead his case with the gods, another chance to sing his song. But Charon wouldn't do it. He chased Orpheus off, preventing him from crossing the river. So for an entire week, Orpheus stayed there on the banks of the river, waiting, hoping, mourning. He didn't eat or drink. He didn't do anything at all but wait and hope. He cursed the gods for their cruelty, though, again, they did him a favor and he fucked it up. Again, I know, I know, we're supposed to feel for Orpheus, but it's just that he did something so fucking avoidable and stupid and I'm having a tough time with it. But whatever, that is what he did before he finally gave up and made his way back to the land of the living alone without his wife he wandered in sadness. Orpheus wandered and he sang his songs, telling stories of others around the Greek world, at least according to Ovid, who uses Orpheus to tell the remaining stories in Book 10. Still, we know that he wandered and presumably sang to anyone who would listen, because that is what Orpheus did. He sang to the world around him, and not just the people who were there to listen. Orpheus in his song, quote, "'Charmed the woodland trees and souls of savage beasts, "'even the stones were held in thrall by Orpheus's tender tones.' "'Until, well... "'One day as Orpheus was wandering his homeland of Thrace, "'singing his songs to the natural world around him, "'enthralling the trees and flowers and even the rocks, "'he was spotted by a group of Thracian women. "'Bacchants, to be more precise,' Main adds, women who followed Dionysus and are often famous for, well, you'll see. The women spotted Orpheus as he sang his songs to nature, and they were immediately filled with fury. It seems, and this doesn't track well enough for me, but it's what we have, that the women understood that Orpheus was scorning their attention, because he hadn't found another woman since he lost Eurydice. He'd kept to himself, avoiding humanity for the most part, choosing to sink to nature instead. Whatever the reason, the women were furious with him and were already driven to a volatile state by the simple fact that they were, well, maenads, which means at least drunk and likely more than that, some kind of impressively mysterious drug, perhaps. They saw him and they cried out in anger, and without a second thought, one of them threw her staff, her thyrsus, the sacred symbol of Dionysus, at Orpheus. It only left a small mark, though he wasn't harmed. At seeing this, another woman threw a stone at him, but little did she know he had already charmed all the stones of the area with his beautiful songs, so it stopped mid-air and fell, leaving him untouched. Quote, it fell at Orpheus's feet as if compelled to seek forgiveness for its Mad audacity. But the fury of these maenads has already started, and at this point it can't be stopped. He could have calmed them itself with his songs, it said, but they couldn't hear him over the sound of their own yells and screams, their drums and flutes, their ear-shattering howls. Quote, And so, at last, the stones were stained with blood, the blood of one whose voice could not be heard. Having spilled Orpheus' blood, though he wasn't particularly harmed just yet, they chose to move on to the things around him, the animals that he had charmed with his song. I won't go into the details here because we don't fuck with hurting animals on this show. It's all about human and divine violence, thank you very much. But that is what they did, all the same. They were entirely overtaken by their emotions and the main ads of it all. Once their hands were stained with blood, when they were covered in gore, they turned on Orpheus, encircling him. And slowly and very, very violently, they killed him. Tearing him apart like these women are known to do, ripping him to shreds with their bare hands and with the weapons of nearby farms, whatever they could find, even the horns of oxen they had killed before they turned on the poet. It was as if they were trying to make it more horrifying than anyone could imagine, more bloody and violent than any other death. With this, quote, he, with arms outstretched, for the first time spoke words without effect, for the first time his voice did not enchant, and they, in desecration, murdered him. And from that mouth whose speech had even held the stones and savage beasts beneath its spell, O Jupiter, the soul, with its last breath, was driven out. Orpheus is dead, ripped to shreds by maenads famously from his own homeland of Thrace. But a man so famous for bringing the natural world together with his songs wasn't forgotten. We'll get into detail of just how much he wasn't forgotten, but from the story alone, Ovid tells us about the ways animals mourned for him. Birds wept, and even the most dangerous of wild animals cried for Orpheus. The trees lost their leaves as a sign of grief. Streams became swollen and overflowed, their banks breaking with the tears. The nymphs wore black veils, they tore at their hair. The pieces of Orpheus were scattered everywhere, but his head was caught up by one of the rivers in mourning, his head and his lyre, and as they flowed through the river the lyre began to play a tune of mourning all on its own. Together the pieces were carried out to the sea, but a snake found Orpheus's head and almost attacked it, before the god Apollo, god of music and song, intervened and saved the head of Orpheus, turning the snake to stone. So the shade of Orpheus found its way back to the underworld, this time he was meant to be there, and he found Eurydice just as he'd always wanted, and they were finally together, even if they were dead. But what of the name Orpheus beyond this story? Like I mentioned at the top, the story of Orpheus existed in some form for hundreds of years. There are hints at him in the work that survives, though little to no visual representation. He seemingly wasn't all that famous, but what comes next in the history, particularly in the history of religion in the ancient world, contradicts that idea very, very strongly. See, Orpheus doesn't appear in any of the most famous writing from the Archaic period. His name isn't in Homer, it isn't in the Homeric Hymns, it isn't in Hesiod, but he seems to start popping up in places. He's on a building at Delphi where he's one of the Argonauts. He's almost certainly referenced in a couple of lost plays. He's referenced, like I quoted earlier, in Euripides' Alcestis. He's around. He's a musician who lost his wife. Maybe a musician who lost his wife and tried to get her back from the underworld, but even that isn't always known. Sometimes he's just a musician who's one of the Argonauts. So why does his name become a part of one of the most bizarre and fascinating religious movements of the ancient world? A movement that I have avoided talking about in any detail, or really at all, these five long years of the podcast, because it is confusing and very weird? How does he become understood to be a very, very historical figure, and one that predates Homer, a poet of an earlier time, a poet who introduced... An alternate understanding to the ancient mythology and an alternate religion? The Orphic tradition is truly something else, which is why it's the subject for next week's episode. I can't even begin to get into it all here, but I wanted to hint. For now, you have the story of Orpheus, this famous poet who's going to become a kind of prophet. But not a prophet like Tiresias, not just someone who knows the future. A prophet how we think of them now, in the context of modern religion even, Orpheus becomes that kind of prophet. Even though this story about him found in detail only in novice metamorphoses and Virgil's georgics, two pieces of Roman imperial literature is, is all we know about him as a person. And now I'm just kind of rambling because it's truly so fascinating, and I just want to hint the hell out of it for next week's episode, because the Orphic tradition is going to be one of the wildest rides I've ever brought you on. Real world stuff real-world religion. So stay tuned. If you can't tell, I'm pretty excited to talk about it with you, let alone the fact that it's just been a good reason for me to finally, finally learn about the damn thing myself after so many years of people bringing up Zagreus and Baobo to me and having absolutely no idea what's going on. Phew. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, speaking of being nerds, you want to learn a fun fact in ancient Greek? This experience by Orpheus traveling to the underworld and back again, or better called a descent into the underworld, has a name. Orpheus did it, and Heracles did it, and Odysseus did it, and even Aeneas, Boredom-in-Chief, did it. It's a famous act. A descent into the underworld and back again, and it is called, in ancient Greek, a catabasis fun, right? I cannot wait to share next week's episode with you all. I'm so excited to be finally researching the Orphic hymns, the Orphic tradition, the whole weird and bizarre mess. And that is exactly what it is. It's also fragmentary and mysterious. And there are so, so, so many unanswered questions. It's going to be a whole time, but that's for next week and probably the week after too. There's a lot going on there. As always, you're all the best for listening, and I would love some more five-star ratings on Spotify and five-star ratings and reviews on Apple. So head on over and pop one of those into the system, would you? I'll be eternally grateful. You might even get your review read on the podcast, like this one from England, which starts, Obsessed. I have been listening to this podcast for the past two years on repeat. It's very well-researched and comprehensive, and Liv references her sources so you can go away and read yourself easily. Liv is super intelligent, witty, feminist, and wildly entertaining. I cannot recommend it enough. Thank you, Liv. Thank you. These mean the world to me, especially somebody calling me intelligent. That's just a thrill, you know? And I get daily updates with them, so you I don't miss a single one. You're all awesome. Thanks for hanging around on my endless wanderings in mythology. Let's talk about Myths Babies, written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She handles so many podcast-related things, including doing a bunch of research on the Orphic hymns so that I can bring it all to you. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for the YouTube Captions and Accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. I am Liv, and I love this shit. (laughs)